This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. At JCPenney, fashion counts for everybody and everybody. The weather is getting warmer and it's time to swap my winter layers for fun, vibrant, and cool clothing with so many fun things happening this spring like Mother's Day and the Wind Down Tour. It's hard to find great looking clothes that fit you just right. That's why I love JCPenney. JCPenney has so many stylish and comfortable options for so many different body types. I've been blown away by their selection and everything hugs my body in all the right spots. Refresh your wardrobe this spring with style that gets you. Something to wear that fits your favorite moments moments of the season at prices that feel just as good. Discover brands that get you and put style and comfort first, like Worthington and Liz Claiborne for her, each in women's petite and plus sizes. Here, spring comes in all shapes, sizes, and colors. JCPenney, make everybody count. You're listening to American Shadows, a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Mankey. When we think of famous gangsters of the 1920s and 30s, we think of New York's Lucky Luciano or Chicago's Al Capone. Of course, mobsters laid claim to other cities as well. In Boston, Charles King Solomon ran the city's underworld. He was born in 1884 to Jewish parents living in Russia, but the family fled to the United States and settled in Massachusetts. It's not clear whether they lived in Salem or Boston's West End, but Solomon fell in with a bad crowd in the area at some point during his youth. His first trip through the justice system happened in 1911 for running a brothel. It would hardly be his last. Arrests for breaking and entering, burglary, gambling, perjury, and even being idle and disorderly soon followed. All told, he was arrested 21 times over the course of 21 years. The only time he spent in prison came after he committed perjury during a narcotics trial. Though he was sentenced to five years, he spent a mere 13 months behind bars. His drive to make the most of gang life catapulted him through the ranks. He established himself in fencing, bonding, gambling, drugs, and brothels, all typical fare for mobsters. A police captain once asked him why he didn't give up the business. He'd already made a fortune, after all. Solomon laughed and said he enjoyed the nightlife far too much to retire. Like most underworld criminals of his time, Solomon's true wealth came during the Prohibition era. While he could make thousands in racketeering, there were millions to be made in illegal liquor. 
And Solomon understood that the old rule of real estate applied to speakeasies and clubs. Location, location, location. He purchased a large amount of property around Boston, from hotels and theaters to a beauty parlor and several restaurants. But his shining stars were the nightclubs. He purchased the Cotton Club, and in 1931, he bought his personal favorite, the Coconut Grove, where he hung out with celebrities and beautiful women. Solomon owned a fleet of boats that brought in liquor from Central America. His liquor empire earned him the nickname Rum Lord with the local authorities. While he didn't exactly flaunt his empire, he didn't do much to conceal it either. His money afforded him enough connections to keep him in power, though his lifestyle eventually caught up with him. Federal indictments named Solomon as the brains in a multi-million dollar liquor smuggling ring on January 8th of 1933. He wasn't worried, though. He told one reporter his friends in high places would ensure that he would beat the rap just as he had all the others. Solomon spent the evening of January 23rd at the Coconut Grove while his wife stayed home. As the night turned into the early hours, he took the party and two dancers he fancied to the Cotton Club. At 3.30 in the morning, clubgoers heard him arguing with someone in the men's room. They reported hearing someone tell Solomon he had it coming. Then, the shots rang out. His attackers fled the club. Solomon staggered out of the bathroom, was rushed to the hospital, and died upon arrival. While the attack looked like a robbery, fellow mobsters were worried he might turn state's evidence against them. Soon afterward, Solomon's lawyer, one Barney Wolanski, took control of the Coconut Grove and began to make plans. I'm Lauren Vogelbaum. Welcome to American Shadows. Boston, history is part of the culture. The city has kept key pieces of itself through centuries of growth and expansion, a few fires, and a molasses flood. It's home to several renowned music, art, and dance venues, and to die-hard sports fans. Red Sox fans are passionate about Fenway Park, America's oldest Major League Baseball stadium. And though the park is famous for baseball, Fenway has hosted everything from soccer to snowboarding to concerts. During World War II, baseball teams took a hit when many players were either drafted or joined the military on their own. Be they major league players, coaches, or referees, men aged 18 to 35 were heading off to war. The attack on Pearl Harbor brought the war close to home. Memories and realities from the First World War still haunted America. Every day, headlines across the country told of the horrors that were happening. Having a distraction and keeping a sense of normalcy felt less terrifying. A few hours to cheer on a favorite team made the war seem farther away, even for a little while. Sports gave Americans a way to escape the war. It took their minds off of rationing and tough economic times. A family and friends gathered to cheer on a favorite team or discuss stats and players. But with so many players having swapped a sports uniform for a military one, Fans wondered if there were enough to keep a season going. The Rose Bowl, typically held in Pasadena, California, had nearly been canceled. After the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor, officials felt the large crowds typically in attendance were too risky. No one knew whether the West Coast would be the next target. Officials had already suspended auto racing due to the rationing of tires and gas for the military. 
several colleges had canceled their football season. This beloved championship game seemed doomed as well. Fortunately, Duke University offered its stadium. The Tournament of Roses committee scrambled, adding additional bleachers from other nearby universities. Tickets sold out in just three days. For baseball, President Roosevelt suggested that the country not cancel the season due to drafts and threw the first pitch himself on opening day. The papers often called Roosevelt baseball's number one fan. And women not only took to production plants, they also took to the ball field. They played in the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League, meant as a temporary fix until the men returned from war. The Red Sox finished the 1942 season second in the American League, winning their last game of the season against the New York Yankees 7-6. Aside from the women's and remaining pro leagues, college games became another favorite. And on one cold November Saturday, a college football game brought Hilda and Houston Gray, along with Hilda's sister Josephine and her husband Francis Driscoll, to Fenway. The stands were packed. The wind and temperature had done little to dissuade fans from attending this highly anticipated game between Boston College and Holy Cross. The undefeated Boston College Eagles were favored 6-1 to one over Holy Cross. Fans speculated about the expected outcome. It wasn't a matter of if Boston would win, they told each other. It was by how much. Boston College fans never anticipated the stunning upset. Not only did Holy Cross win, they annihilated Boston College 55-12. to Players had been so confident they'd win that they'd already made plans to celebrate their victory at the trendy Coconut Grove nightclub. But the defeat had been too humiliating, and they canceled. Many fans, likewise, left Fenway to head back home. But the Greys and the Driscolls had planned an evening of fun. Instead of calling it quits, they decided to continue. The couples chose to club hop through Boston's Back Bay and the South End. From there, they'd go to the Coconut Grove. They'd already made obligations with two more couples, and canceling would be difficult. They took the approach that even though their team had lost, they wouldn't let it ruin a perfectly good evening. With a reframed attitude, the couples left Fenway and looked forward to a great time dining and taking in the show with friends. It would turn out to be the worst evening of their lives. The Coconut Grove was built in 1927, during the height of the Prohibition era. Boston law, still under Puritan constraints, didn't permit nightclubs. However, supper clubs, clubs that offered dinner and a show, were all the rage. Originally owned and operated by orchestra leaders Mickey Alpert and Jacques Renard, the Grove opened on Piedmont Street in Bay Village. The area was prime real estate, located between trendy Back Bay and the fashionable theater district, the future home to the Boston Opera. The club's tropical paradise ambiance catered to patrons seeking good food, exceptional service, and plenty of entertainment. Musicians and movie stars occasionally dined at the club, making it even more popular. Nightclubs made it easy to move bootleg liquor, and the Coconut Grove changed hands from Albert and Renard to mobster Charles King Solomon. After Solomon's death, Barney Wolanski took over the club. When the 1920s lifestyle of excess and dirty money turned to destitution and depression for many, the Coconut Grove continued to profit. Wolanski gave people what they wanted, luxury, booze, and an escape from their daily lives. 
patrons entered through a revolving door on Piedmont. Those wanting to spend time in the recently added and aptly named New Lounge had a separate entrance on Broadway. A narrow corridor connected the main room and the lounge. Stairs off the main entrance and dining room led to the basement and the more intimate Melody Lounge. Luxurious fabric wallpaper covered the walls. Blue satin draped from the ceilings, and paper and tinsel palm trees treated patrons to a tropical-esque setting. The Boston College players may have decided to cancel their plans, but the club had little trouble attracting customers. Aside from the game, it was Thanksgiving weekend. The servicemen from the 1st Naval District were on leave, many of whom had converged on the club with their dates. The club was packed when the Greys and their party arrived at 9 o'clock. They checked their hats and coats at the cloakroom and made their way into the lobby. People had to turn sideways, shuffle, and wiggle their way past others to get to the dining room. The Greys learned that the club had overbooked. Though they'd had reservations, their table had been given to another party. The only table available was across the dining room at the far end of the stage. The seating wasn't optimal, but the party of eight accepted the spot and settled in. Music played, and people took to the dance floor. The Greys and their party watched the dancers and the crowd. The Grove was the place to see and be seen. Among the crowd was Buck Jones, a famous Hollywood actor who starred in cowboy movies. Jones had also attended the football game. He was tired from traveling. He'd been part of a war bond campaign, and he wasn't feeling well. But Jones's agent convinced him to have dinner at the club before returning to his hotel. Around 10 that night, Hilda, who had been sitting with her back to the wall, complained that the room was too hot. She even noted that the wall was hot to the touch. At first, she wondered if she had imagined the heat with all the people and hot food around. Curious, Hewson touched the wall too. And upon agreeing with his wife, the others got up to investigate. They didn't know the series of events that had unfolded seconds earlier. A busboy had found a bulb out near the Melody Lounge and lit a match. A nearby paper palm tree instantly ignited, bursting into flames. A staff used water and seltzer in an attempt to douse the fire. People rushed for the four-foot-wide stairs toward the emergency exit as the flames jumped to the fabric wallpaper and the draped ceiling, but the exit had been blocked. A few people made it to the main dining room, shouting, Fire! Fire! The dancing stopped, and everyone bolted for the exits at the same time. The fire raced up the walls and into the dining room, plunging the coconut grove into chaos. Fire Commissioner William Arthur Riley said the fire took less than five minutes to spread 40 feet across the Melody Lounge and up the only stairwell, trapping people inside. Seconds later, it tore through the lobby and into the club's main dining room. When the first people arrived from the basement, Houston thought that someone had yelled, Fight! Reality sunk in seconds later as people scrambled for the door. Well past a safe occupancy, the thousand-plus people inside the club rushed for the few exits. Those in the Melody Club had no way to escape once the blaze overtook the narrow staircase. All the paper, fabric, asbestos, and wooden furniture in the dining room fueled the fire. Black smoke filled the air, making breathing difficult and seeing nearly impossible. People fell over chairs in each other in their frantic search for an escape. They piled into the revolving door, jamming it shut. Others still trying to push their way into the door were crushed against it. 
a wall of people pushed against another exit, not realizing it only opened inward. Those who figured out the doors couldn't open them due to the panic and the sheer amount of people pushing against them, crushing some against the door to death. A waiter near the gray's table rushed past, pulling drapes away from the wall to reveal a hidden door. As the group followed him to the exit, the lights went out. Hilda and Hewson clung to each other in the dark. Screams and smoke filled the air. They stumbled through a tunnel, careful not to lose their footing for fear of being trampled. Finally, they reached the door and found it locked. Not far from the club, firebells rang. Not for the club, though. Someone had pulled the lever at a nearby firebox at 10.15 due to a car fire three streets from the grove. Firefighters had no sooner doused the flames when people ran up to them, alerting them to the fire at the club. The responders were met with heavy, dark smoke pouring from the building. A passerby watched people jam themselves into the revolving doors. No amount of effort budged them. Meanwhile, inside, Hewson and the other men desperately attempted to bust down the locked door as more people piled in behind them, coughing and choking on the smoke. The heat from the encroaching flames was growing unbearable. Like the people trapped at the other exits, the group found that no amount of effort budged the door. Before the flames reached the wall of people, there was a loud crash, then a sudden whoosh of cold air. Firefighters with axes began to pull everyone out of the building. One firefighter noted that the fire burned so hot that those victims who managed to escape fell like stones once they took a breath of cold air. The fire chief called for the nearby naval yard's help, along with the army, the coast guard, anyone capable of lending a hand. Taxi drivers responded, taking victims to the hospital. There were so many victims with injuries and damaged lungs that newspaper delivery trucks soon joined as makeshift ambulances. The nearby hospitals received 114 victims in just two hours. A film distribution company's garage near the club served as a temporary morgue. The garage filled up quickly, though the worst was still inside the club. Once the firefighters extinguished the blaze, what they found there was nothing short of slaughter. The fire had spread so fast that anyone who didn't escape within the first few minutes died from smoke inhalation or burns. Only 492 people survived. That number exceeded the club's occupation limit. Over a thousand people had been inside. The number of fatalities made it the deadliest nightclub fire in history. 20 employees perished. A movie star Buck Jones also died. One employee who survived told reporters that his brother had waited on the star while he had waited on a family of ten. Only one of those family members survived. Hilda, Hewson, the Driscolls, and the two other couples they were with escaped. They credited the move to the new table, closer to an exit, as what saved their lives. Investigators learned that the Coconut Grove hadn't had an operational license for years. The club didn't have a liquor license, food license, or food handling permit. A further digging revealed that owner Barney Walansky had hired underage bussers, neglected to apply for permits during remodeling, and had used unlicensed contractors. Worse, Boston's fire captain had inspected the nightclub 10 days before the fire and determined that the club was safe. In a strange twist, the night the Coconut Grove caught fire, Wolanski was in a private room at Massachusetts General Hospital, recovering from a heart attack. 
Investigators asked Wolanski how the fire could have happened and why so many exits had been blocked off. Wolanski boldly responded that his connection to the mob and favors from the mayor meant that licenses and permits didn't concern him. Mayor Vincent Tobin repeatedly denied any such affiliation with Wolanski. On top of the violations and corruption, no one could agree on the body count. Investigators had their work cut out for them. The hospitals and morgues faced their own challenges. Recovered bodies had been so severely burned that identification was nearly impossible. The fire had destroyed wallets and purses, further complicating the process. For several days, the fire dominated the headlines in Boston, shifting attention away from war stories. The fire made the front page of the New York Times and the Washington Post, and movie star Buck Jones's death made news in papers across the country. Over the days following the tragedy, the stories moved from what caused the blaze to the victims, witnesses, and survivors. A 16-year-old busboy, Stanley Tomaszewski, was under intense scrutiny for starting the fire, though the public saw Wolanski as the real villain. The mob lawyer-turned-nightclub owner had locked some exits, hid others behind drapes, and bricked over another to prevent customers from dining and dashing. He'd maximized his own profits while underpaying his staff and ignoring health and safety issues. During the trial, the fire commissioner testified that Stanley hadn't done anything wrong in lighting the match in the darkened hallway. In fact, the final report declared that the fire had started from an unknown origin. They found two contenders for what might have caused the flame to ignite. Methyl chloride used instead of Freon, or toxic fumes from the leatherette sofas. Without a clear-cut cause, many people chose to continue blaming Stanley. For a while, he lived in a police-guarded hotel room. Later, he told a reporter that he prayed for the lives lost every day. Eventually, he went to college, married, and had a family, though he continued visiting the victims' graves. Wolanski's entitlement and negligence caught up with him. Neither his political ties nor mob connections could save him from a manslaughter charge. The court sentenced him to 12 to 15 years. Mayor Tobin escaped the indictment and went on to become the governor. Once in office, he pardoned Wolanski. His freedom was short-lived, though. Nine weeks later, Wolanski died from cancer. Tragedies often spur changes. New laws emerged. Stationary doors had to be installed next to revolving doors. Flammable materials were banned, and exits had to be well-marked. Life went on for the survivors. The last left the hospital six weeks after the fire. And in time, seven couples who lived to tell the tale exchanged wedding vows. There's more to this story. Stick around after this brief sponsor break to hear all about it. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up! 
and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. At JCPenney, fashion counts for everybody and everybody. It's spring, and with the weather changing and so many great things coming up like Mother's Day and the Wind Down Tour, I definitely need a fresh spring wardrobe for every occasion. This spring, I'm looking for that perfect flowy spring dress for Mother's Day, as well as replacing my everyday basics. That's what I love about JCPenney. They have so many stylish and comfortable options that I always find just what I'm looking for there. Spring is a feel-good season and comes in all shapes, sizes, and colors. The fashion at JCPenney is the same way. Refresh your wardrobe this spring with styles that gets you. Something to wear that fits your favorite moments of the season at prices that feel just as good. Discover brands that get you and put style and comfort first, like Worthington and Liz Claiborne for her. Each in women's petite and plus sizes, and Stafford and Mutual Weave for him. Style and comfort for all, even big and tall. Plus even more for the whole family like Levi's and Exertion. Here spring comes in all shapes, sizes, and colors. JCPenney, make everybody count. Rodney Dangerfield used to say that he went to watch a fight and a hockey game broke out. There's no shortage of stories about professional sports players ending up in public fights, though few ever caught the attention that the Yankees did in the late 1950s. In 1956, the team celebrated the end of a season with a World Series win against their longtime rivals, the Brooklyn Dodgers. The following year, they were back, playing better than ever. With greats like Yogi Berra and Mickey Mantle, fans thought that they had found an unstoppable dream team in Major League Baseball. On May 16th, the celebrations resumed with Billy Martin's 29th birthday. Teammates Whitey Ford, Hank Bauer, Mickey Mantle, Yogi Berra, Martin, and their wives headed to the Copacabana. And the club had opened in 1940 with ties to mobster Frank Costello. Decorated in Latin American furnishing and style, the Copacabana offered musical talents and food to match. Patrons enjoyed the famous chorus girls and celebrity sightings. The club had two rules, a proper dress code and no black patrons. The club even refused to host celebrities like Harry Belafonte. While the dress code remained, the club eventually allowed black performers in the 1950s. And on the night of Martin's birthday, Sammy Davis Jr. was playing one of his last shows at the club. Mantle, Martin, and the rest had made the rounds at two other clubs before they walked into the Copacabana and took their seats at a table next to a group of bowlers from Washington Heights. However much the Yankees and their wives drank before arriving, the bowlers were twice as drunk. Normally, staff ushered improperly attired or rowdy clientele to the cheap seats in the Burma Road section. The bowlers had managed to sneak past the bouncer at the door and take a table near the stage. The bowlers became louder and louder, voicing their opinions to anyone within earshot, especially negative and racially charged comments regarding Sammy Davis Jr. Each new insult made Billy Martin angrier, and his reputation for a bad temper preceded him. He told the bowlers to stop heckling Davis, or else. One of the bowlers looked over at the table and said, Don't trust your luck, Yankee. Hank Bauer was quick to respond, telling the bowler to go perform a physically impossible act on himself. Meanwhile, one of the bowlers who had been hurling insults at Davis went to the restroom. Martin and Whitey followed. Ford's wife leaned over and asked Bauer to go see what was happening. He had been a Marine before landing a spot on the Yankees, so he went to ensure that there wasn't any trouble. He later told reporters that he was too late. Bouncers had already arrived. 
Bera or Whitey, he couldn't recall which one, grabbed him and told him to get out of there. He claimed he left and went back to his hotel. Around 4.30 in the morning, Bauer said the phone rang. A writer for the paper told him that one of the bowlers was accusing him of assault. The next day, Dan Topping, the Yankees president and part owner, called the team in. Topping told the players, it'll cost you each a grand. One of the bowlers, Edward Jones, disagreed. He'd been sent to the hospital with a broken nose, a broken jaw, and a concussion. Though Bauer insisted he never laid a hand on him, Jones pressed charges and filed a lawsuit. The team was closely knit and came to his defense in court. Barra told one of the reporters, nobody did nothing to nobody. Mantle was asked if he'd seen an unconscious man lying on the club's floor. He replied that he had, but had no idea how he'd come to be there, unless Roy Rogers rode through and Trigger kicked him. The jury broke into laughter. Without sufficient evidence to prove Bauer had been in a fight or had hit Jones, the judge dismissed the case. The Yankees manager traded Martin to Kansas City. Bauer's position in the lineup dropped. However, Mantle wasn't punished. The manager insisted he was mad, but not mad enough to potentially lose a pennant. American Shadows is hosted by Lauren Vogelbaum. This episode was written by Michelle Muto, researched by Ali Steed, and produced by Miranda Hawkins and Trevor Young, with executive producers Aaron Menke, Alex Williams, and Matt Frederick. To learn more about the show, visit GrimmandMile.com. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Since every minute counts when you're a new parent, who wants to waste time washing bottles? Transform this daily chore with the Baby Bretza Bottle Washer Pro, the first machine that automatically washes, sterilizes, and dries bottles, pump parts, and sippy cups at the push of a button. Its 20 spray jets clean everything 100%. Plus, it sterilizes with steam, then dries with germ-free air. Don't waste time on tedious handwashing. Let the Baby Bretza Bottle Washer Pro do it for you. Shop now at babybretza.com. Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why Gainbridge offers the Parity Flex annuity, designed for women's unique retirement needs, with flexible withdrawals plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. Gainbridge is helping build a better financial future for women. Retirement income you can't outlive is the ultimate flex. Start saving now at gainbridge.io. Visit gainbridge.io/parityflex for current rates, full product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring.